Right, good morning or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, I'm William Chung. I'm the managing editor of Fulcrum, the commentary website of the ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. And today I have an illustrious panel with me. Uh, we want to talk about the State of Southeast Asia survey and of course the impact of uh, the Ukraine-Russia issue on Southeast Asia. And with me, I have uh, Alina Noor from the Asia Society Policy Institute. I have uh, Hung Litu from the uh, ASPI from, from Canberra, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And I have my colleague, Sharon Sia, who is the coordinator of the ASEAN Study Center here at the ICS Yusuf Institute. And of course, um, as you know, the the State of Southeast Asia Survey, which is widely followed uh, in Southeast Asia and around the world, was launched on the 16th of February. And we've, we've seen a really good uh, reception to, to the survey. And eight days later, on the 24th of February, we saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or what Moscow calls a special military operation. And we've seen very varied responses from ASEAN member states to the invasion. Uh, of course, Singapore came up with a very strong reaction, uh, followed by Brunei, Vietnam, and the Philippines. So in, in this podcast, we want to go through some of the highlights uh, of, of the survey, or at least in the eyes of the uh, our, our speakers. And also, we want to discuss what are some of the implications that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has for ASEAN in terms of some of the policy choices that Southeast Asian countries uh, will be making. So let's go straight into the survey. I'm sure Alina and Hung, you have read the survey from cover to cover. Um, maybe I want to start with Alina as to what do you think are some of the most striking bits of the report that caught your attention, Alina? Yeah, thanks, William. I think by and large, many of the findings of the report were not wholly surprising to me. Mm -hmm. And I know this was a massive undertaking. Uh, so congratulations to Sharon and team for putting out yet another excellent survey. But I think two things from this year's survey really stood out to me. And the first was the vote of confidence uh, amongst the respondents for their government's response to COVID. And perhaps that was the cynical part of me, but um, I was expecting a slightly lower vote of confidence oh. for whatever reason, probably my bias. Um, and then the second thing that stood out to me was the slightly more than half uh, of respondents who voted positively for the Quad actually. Mm -hmm. So those were really two of the findings that were quite significant, I felt, um, from my perspective. And of course, COVID and the kind of vote of confidence in the Quad, Alina, is kind of, they are related, right? Because the, the way that they voted for the Quad was kind of related to the way that the, the question was phrased, because it was, the question was phrased, you know, what are your feelings towards the Quad in in the light of the Quad, you know, having all these deliverables, right? And one of them is on uh, vaccinations. And, and I think it was, what's the second one? Was it climate change? 
So in a sense, they, they are related. And that's, that's probably something about the quad that has made it a bit more palatable to the mm. region. Yeah, maybe I'll just jump in here. We did ask a question of the quad two years ago, and it was a very straight cut question. You know, what do you think of the quad? And the responses were not as positive as now. But, and this year, we uh, rephrased the question because we noted that the narrative of the quad has actually changed from a pure security pact to now looking at more practical cooperation aspects which is why the question had to be phrased as, you know, the strengthening of the quad, prospects of tangible cooperation in these areas, do you feel it's positive and reassuring? And um, so that's how uh, it came about. I like to believe that it was because the quad has been listening to what ASEAN wants and, um, and that, that they've actually been shifting their narrative a little to accommodate these interests. And also because they don't have any other choice but to go down the route that ASEAN has kind of mapped out in, you know, we need deliverables, we need to show us the goods to, to mm -hmm. get some traction um, in the region. And so, yes, I, I think they have been listening mm -hmm. as well. Um, thanks for that. Um, and Hung, do you have any kind of uh, uh, thoughts about the survey in terms of highlights? Thanks, William. Yes, I think it was quite an important uh, survey of the regional views in a very volatile time because when the, the survey was put out, I think it was very still at the midst of pandemic, a lot of things were moving. Um, not yet the conflict in Ukraine, but a lot of other things. So it was interesting to see, for example, whether the regional views on the vaccine diplomacy really shifted. And uh, it was interesting to see that there are slight changes in the perception of trust to uh, major powers, not, not overly um, changing, but there are slight changes compared to the previous years. Uh, so, for example, there is a little bit more confidence in China than uh, uh, in the previous year. Uh, but I, I would say that probably the vaccine diplomacy have not yielded like overwhelming changing ground that one would expect. There are, of course, different preferences to, to vaccine brands and whatnot, but I don't think that alone has shifted uh, regional views on the great powers and their role in the region. Um, and another point that was interesting to see was, of course, the responses and the reactions to the Myanmar crisis and how ASEAN as a region responded. Um, the survey really reflects what we see as a diplomatic impasse, I would say, because about three, a third, a third would support, a little bit more than a third, but uh, about a third would say uh, neutral or close to the third, and about a third was not satisfied. So you, you clearly see the division among the respondents that really is reflected in, in the diplomatic impasse in the meetings and uh, efforts that are uh, being shown in practice. So we see how the region is divided on multiple issues, and we are might be one of key of them. In, in terms of just the the China-US dynamic, uh, Hung, do you think that, uh, I mean, China has pretty much retained kind of its uh, top dog ranking in terms of economic influence as well as political strategic influence. But I think um, there was an interesting uh, development in terms of the US kind of trending up uh, in terms of, you know, how 
uh, respondents' view, you know, confidence in the United States, you know, on international law um, and, and, you know, regional order. So do you think that that's kind of like a moving from Trump to Biden effect? Uh, there's kind of a bounce there? Or, or how, how do you see it? Yeah, I do see a little bit slight more confidence in the US, even though I think there is also some adjustment in terms of expectations. I think the previous year showed much more enthusiasm about incoming Biden administration and what uh, you know that would mean for US engagement to Southeast Asia. I think this year did show a slight uh, decrease in that uh, in confidence in the engagement itself, right? But there are uh, more confidence in other areas. You mentioned some of them, William, and I was surprised to see that um, there's more confidence in US as leading in trade agenda, whether even though we didn't see much of that changing, but for some reasons, uh, I think there's most confidence in, in US as a leader in trade agenda among the respondents um, this year around. So I think it's a mixed picture. There are slight fluctuations, not, not massive fluctuation, but um, there's adjustment towards, you know, how much US will engage with the region, but there are a little bit more confidence uh, in other uh, areas, including, you know, in the in the uh, uh, frequent question that the survey asked, if you have to choose between US and China, uh, more would choose US and, and uh, similar like last year, but slightly uh, more this year as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think what I was trying to say, Hung, is that, uh, that uh, if you look at the indicators, at least on the Quad and AUKUS, it tends to be trending up. Of course, we've, we've discussed the Quad. Um, AUKUS, I think it was something like 36% that was kind of positive of AUKUS, and I think that's quite encouraging. Although we have to kind of caveat by saying that, you know, the other categories were a bit more guarded. I mean, something that it will spark the arms race, something that it will weaken ASEAN centrality. And of course, on that confidence in kind of the US being a leader in trade, that I agree with you, that came out like an anomaly to, to, to Sharon and I. And we're trying to imagine what was going on in the heads of the respondents when they voted the way that they voted. Um, maybe Sharon, you want to jump in here and give some of your thoughts? Honestly, I don't have a clear-cut answer to that. It it bogged me as well because there were no concrete actions we've seen in Southeast Asia, at least in the past year since President Joe Biden took up office. We did hear of uh, an expected Indo-Pacific strategy that would come out. But in any case, the strategy paper came out, I believe, just a few days um, before our survey launched. And even then, we have no details on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, we have so little to work on. So I think it is just this pent-up uh, anticipation that the US would come back and engage in a big way economically in the minds of the survey takers. Whether it will actually pan out or turn out uh, it remains to be seen. Yeah, and maybe for some, for Eleanor, you're sitting in DC, you might have something uh, to share with us or to add on to what I've just said. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll have your work cut out for you next year, Sharon, because the survey results seem to have shown kind of a buoyant bubble of inflationary optimism, maybe, um, to be a little wordy. But I think 
it'll be interesting to see if that optimism uh, was premature upon reflection. As you rightly pointed out, there hasn't been very many details. There haven't been very many details released about IPEF. Um, and I think there has so far been a bit of disappointment in what may or may not be left out. Um, I'm talking about market access. So how IPEF passes out, when it will be released, um, on top of the fact that the summit now seems to have been postponed, uh, will probably, if I were a betting person, will probably change the results of um, this optimistic view of the US if we're looking at things a year from now. I, I want to jump in here, Alina. I think what you said was quite apt and what you say about IPEF passing out. I think when you say passing out, you mean it being released publicly, but not passing out as in passing out. But in a sense, you're not wrong to say passing out because we've had some discussions with American officials and diplomats and they, they keep telling us, uh, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the term, we're talking about Indo-Pacific economic framework that is outlined in the Indo-Pacific strategy document that was released by Washington earlier in February. And uh, so we've been talking to all these American officials and they keep telling us that it's coming out, it's coming out, we're going to have that strategy. But I think Sharon would agree with me that there's kind of, like you say, there's an inflated, buoyant bubble here and there's a lot of expectations about the economic framework. But in the end, you know, it won't, the apple won't fall far from the tree as to what was already listed in, in the Indo-Pacific strategy document. It's going to be about supply chain. It's going to be about digital economy. You know, it's going to be kind of what you call higher level kind of economic initiatives. But in terms of the meat and potatoes, in terms of market access that countries like Malaysia wants, countries like Indonesia wants, countries like the Philippines one, I, we're not going to see that for, for a long time coming until they can convince Joe Blow in Texas or Mississippi or Kansas to, you know, to think twice about the US joining this mega trade deals. Um, Sharon, do you have yeah. any thoughts? Which is why when the Indo-Pacific strategic paper came out, it was quite clear that they were also addressing the domestic audience with this prong of you know pro co-prosperity with the Indo-Pacific region. And I, I believe that was in part talking to your Joe Blows in Michigan and, and wherever else to try to get that domestic buy-in. Um, but the details, like you said, I think if you're imagining a regional trade agreement sort of thing like uh, equivalent to the TPP that's not going to happen um, they've been well from the White House press briefings it's also been coming out that it's quite clear market access is off the table so a lot of it has got to do with now managing the expectations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that when that buoyant inflationary optimistic bubble bursts it doesn't <laughs> impact every one of us too badly mm. yeah yeah, and don't forget that um, congressional elections are happening this mm -hmm. November. So your point about speaking to the domestic audience is a really important one. Hung, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? How, how does it look to you from Australia? Yeah, from, from yeah uh, I was going back to your point of quad and where, you know, US 
and partners and allies can um, make some difference in the region or how can it engage despite, you know, of course, the domestic considerations that we've been discussing. And the, the point on the quad that this uh, year's survey uh, showed was quite positive, as you mentioned, um, nearly, what, or nearly 60% supported. But the question was very specific, right? It was about tangible areas of cooperation, which is vaccine diplomacy and climate change. So it's it's very specific. In, in, in that regard, I mean, most of the region would welcome US partnership with other allies and, uh, and partners, whether it's quite or other arrangement, um, would very much welcome you know tangible areas of cooperation but if you put if, had you put you know um, more generally about the quad or quad arrangement institutions um, it's it tends to be still conflated with you know other ambitions that quad may have because of its its name security dialogue in its name yeah. but if you put a very tangible areas of cooperation where clearly Southeast Asia benefit from and you know there's a demand for both you know vaccines or climate actions then obviously it is a, a, an example of of where you know such partnership can be well perceived perhaps there's a case for the quad to drop this the word security from quadrilateral security dialogue you know and just turn it into a quadrilateral dialogue uh, that might you know sell better in, in, in the region. That's, that's a suggestion. Um, conversely, that, given that we're talking about the Quad and we're talking about economic frameworks, um, it seems that China seems to have gained a bit of traction, right? In, in, in the past year, we've, we've seen RCEP. Um, and of course, China is being very clear that it wants to join CPTPP, and in in a sense, we we've come full circle. If any of you can remember, it was Barack Obama. I think was it in twenty twelve who says, you know, we are jumping into the Trans Pacific Partnership, and the United States is the country that will decide who will make the rules when it comes to future trade agreements, and that's sounding like so last century now, right? Because We've, we've seen the U.S. withdrawing from the TPP in 2017. And now we are seeing China wanting to join, you know, TPP version 2.0. Um, so how, how do you see that? Because um, if, you know, the, the Quad, you know, likes to talk about, you know, regional order and, and kind of security and freedom of navigation, but it's China who actually dishes out you know, the goods when it comes to market access. And of course, we, we don't need to go into the point that China is a top trading partner and investor in Southeast Asia as well. So do, do you think that, you know, come survey, 2023 survey, that China will even gain more points on, on that front? Uh, Elena? Yeah, you're right, William. It's so BC, right? So before COVID. Um, <laughs> We had gone back a few years ago and, and asked um, U.S. trade negotiators in particular, right, cast your mind forward to a few years. Would you have, can you imagine like China asking to join the CPTPP based on rules that the U.S. essentially had written and sought to yeah. drive, yeah. Uh, push through in the region? 
who would have thought? But you know, we never expected a pandemic. So I guess um, all things are off the, the not on on off the table, I suppose. Um, but I think if we again cast our mind maybe a year forward, I don't know that anybody seriously expects uh, China to be able to live up to the CPTPP mm-hmm. rules of the road as they are right now. Uh, but the fact that China did express interest in joining, I think, is uh, signifies quite a bit, uh, and and certainly is symbolic in its own way. And as we all know, symbols go a long way in this region. Mm-hmm. But I guess we'll see, right? Um, whether that translates into anything. To me, what is striking is that the U.S. often castigates Southeast Asia for picking the U.S. for security purposes and China for its economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. But that is the reality because, as you pointed out, William, um, China has been able to dish out the economic goods and the U.S. has, you know, fortunately or unfortunately been able to provide the security guarantees, but only just that for now. Mm. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Absolutely, right. Hung, um, I think when it comes to China and the CPTPP, I think we will have to kind of look at how countries like Australia and Japan actually see, you know, China's application, right? Because, you know, it was Japan who was kind of the midwife that, you know, brought about the CPTPP. Of course, we have some Australian colleagues who, who would dispute that and say that, well, Australia played a big role you know, in the midwifery, uh, moving from TPP to CPTPP. But how, how do you see it in, in Australia? How, how would Australia view kind of China's application to join CPTPP, you know, given the state of uh, the, the rather rosy or, or you know, less than rosy relations between Canberra and Beijing at the moment? <laughs> Yeah, I think at the current stage in the current government, everything China does is is a no uh, uh, from Canberra. And I think um, the elections are coming up in May, but I don't think there is going to be a massive, at least uh, we don't see it uh, coming, a massive turn or change uh, in the China policy. Generally, um, Australia would not want to welcome China and CPTPP, but also I think there's a bigger question you know whether it is a you know viable option to to block someone else uh, from att- uh, from participating, uh, but there is a question whether you know can China um, uh, can China join, but can also Taiwan join right at the same mm-hmm. time? The UK has already um, uh, uh, applied, and I think you know there's a saying uh, I forgot from which, from which country, but you know uh, it, it says that you can't make a point if you're not present at the table. So for U.S. not being um, at the CPTPP, we can't have a conversation about setting rules and norms uh, or having a decision, uh, decision power there either. Now the question is how other powers, like you mentioned, uh, will interact and, and um, will set new norms. Like we are in the business of norm setting right now as so all rules and norms are not being uh, rigorously uh, respected in the current world order. Um, but I think uh, in general, Southeast Asian countries, those are that are part of CPTPP won't 
um, in principle, exclude anyone just because. Um, so I think this conversation to be had whether um, to be had whether you know if China participate, does that also open store for countries like or economies like Taiwan itself? But that should be a more of equal footing consideration, right? I agree. I said that I I I wouldn't in the life of me think how Beijing would think about. Taiwan being admitted into CPTPP, that's certainly a no-go zone, right, for, for Beijing. But I agree with you. I think I, if I were a cynical policymaker in Washington, I, I would say that uh, I'll get my allies in Japan and, and Australia to, to, you know, kind of put procedural obstacles in China's way as to, you know, you have to jump through 10 hoops before you can even think about furthering your application for CPTPP. Perhaps we can we can move to kind of the topic of the day of the month, if not the decade, which is Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine. I, I just want to get your first cut uh, reactions. Um, perhaps uh, Alina can, can lead us off as to how, what bearing or what implications do you think what's happening in Ukraine has for Southeast Asia, writ large. So the implications and, and potential impact have already been quite well documented. But personally, I, I am still a little confused as to what to believe and who to believe. There's so much unraveling to do because things are still evolving. Mm -hmm. And there are so many dimensions to this conflict that we haven't begun to consider. Everything just seems to be moving at rapid fire pace. Um, which is probably what the Russians had in mind when they invaded Ukraine, but it doesn't seem that their military campaign has moved at an equal rapid fire pace. And so we're likely to see this drag out for a while. But in the meantime, a whole bunch of people seem to have made up their minds very determinately about where to stand and what position to take. And I just feel, and I'm probably in minority on this, that it's far too early to be um, taking a position, any other position, apart from the fact that you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine is illegal and contravenes international law. But there's so much background that needs to be unpacked, I feel. Mm. Would you think that um, there will be, you know, in terms of analysts in Asia and Indo-Pacific, do you think that there will be a transmission channel as to what's happening in Ukraine? And how, you know, there could be some transmission of, you know, implications or impacts uh, via China, given that there's a kind of an axis between China and Russia, and perhaps they might somehow impact this region. I think Taiwan has been mentioned um, um, in, in, in this aspect. Um, maybe Hung can, can give us some, some insight onto that. I think the invasion of Russia into Ukraine put, puts everybody at uh, a really anxious position and unease, especially smaller and middle-sized countries that you know felt protected by the international system, international law, and the self-restraint of the big guys who mm -hmm. you know uh, will behave themselves and won't invade just because they are bigger and they can. So I think that's uh, that confidence in the international system has been shaken for sure, and and uh, certainly I wouldn't go into conclusion that you know this can be copy paste 
used uh, in other instances, uh, such as you mentioned, Taiwan or even South China Sea. But certainly there is uh, this anxiety, palatable anxiety that, uh, you know, is no longer in the realm of discussion or debate, you know, that big and powerful countries, uh, if, if they decide so, they would go to, to the extent of, of invading, which Putin showed. And the question is, um, you know, um, how international system and international community reacts because um, diplomacy is uh, the way to support international law, which Elena just mentioned as well. Um, so I think there is a role for everyone, even though um, Southeast Asian countries traditionally and for all good reasons prefer kind of a neutral stance and not taking a side and not being dragged into conflicts. And some to even go to the extent of saying that it's a faraway conflict that don't affect them directly. But I think it's, it's um, you know, even in the oil and gas and food prices and, and international flight and freight, it, it is affecting everyone, let alone the humanitarian crisis ha happening there. And, you know, there is this notion of anxiety that peace dividend era is, is gone. Uh, what next then? Can, can Southeast Asian countries as middle size the small countries uh, support that what remain of the international system and not allow such you know occurrence happen again i think this year is quite critical because you have indonesia as a chair of g20 yeah. you have thailand as a chair of apac yeah. you have cambodia China as asian and east asia summit so really in the leadership role beyond just a direct Southeast Asia region, but really um, exercising that leadership and agency in the broader multilateral fora. So there will be pressure on, on the uh, Southeast Asia to have a say, especially um, that, the, uh, you know, we, we want to claim uh, ASEAN agency, but there, when, you know, there's a pressure to, to act and, and lead, then there is a, 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 um, a hesitancy there. So I, I think it's, it's a really critical year for Southeast Asia and, and the conflict in, in Ukraine is not a far away and unrelated conflict to the region. Mm. Two points that I like to pick out. Um, China is going on has went on to say that uh, Taiwan is not Ukraine, um, and I I think Beijing has a point there because uh, you know it's unthinkable that in in the twenty first century that you know Ukraine will be invaded you know and we will see war again on the European continent but the fact remains that you know Taiwan is not Ukraine as in Taiwan is not an independent sovereign country and I, I can't even begin to remember how many countries actually have a one China policy in the sense that you know in effect you know Taiwan is not independent or sovereign. So I think when you mention reactions, I think let's say in, in some point in the future, if there is a kind of amphibious invasion of Taiwan by China, I doubt that you'll see the same voting patterns in the United Nations General Assembly, right? Simply because, you know, it's, it's that it, we, we are comparing apples and oranges uh, here. And of course, you know, we, we, I'm sure a lot of countries will be calling for this de-escalation and kind of talks and dialogue to and mediation and all that. But we can't avoid the fact that Ukraine is not the same category as, as Taiwan. And, and Hung, when you mentioned about ASEAN countries exercising agency, I think one of the most 
pertinent signposts that we can watch out for this year is of course, like you said, Thai, Thailand on APEC and India on the G20 is like, basically, will Putin show up and if he does show up, what happens? I mean, that's like kind of the question of the day, right? Like, uh, if Putin decides to show up, will the other countries boycott? And which I think is quite likely. Um, if, I mean, if Putin does find the time to actually visit <laughs> you know, Bangkok, you know. Sharon, do you have any thoughts on, on the issue? I think here in Southeast Asia, we've been very busy explaining or trying to articulate the, the implications of the Russian invasion on Ukraine uh, to, these, to this group of states that actually have been only very recently decolonized. Uh, 50 plus years is not a long time in, in history and um, some of these memories are still quite fresh for some of them. For instance, um, in our own backyard, you know, Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia and so on. I think that's still uh, very much in uh, memory of people living in that part of the world. So it was Vietnam quite would surprising. say that would be sorry, sorry to interrupt. Vietnam would say that was responsibility to protect. That's right. Yeah. So there are different versions and different interpretations. Uh, no one can say anyone's completely right or wrong. But in any case, it was quite surprising to see how ASEAN reacted to the invasion. And they took a while to kind of come down and consolidate their thoughts. But I, what I wanted to say is that also the, the crisis has domestic implications And I think that's not very much talked about because there seems to be a polarization in society. Uh, here in Singapore, we have been seeing a lot more of that coming out on social media where people are saying that Singapore is a small country, you should just hide and not say anything. Just And then there's, uh, as I was saying, the, there's a polarization in society. In Indonesia as well, I've heard that uh, there's been different views coming across the spectrum about Ukraine and Russia and similarly in Singapore as well and that conversation uh, has been taking place ever since the, the Ukrainian crisis happened and largely because people feel that um, there, are, there are segments in society that's taking the, the Chinese view that uh, you know uh, Russia is not at fault, the US is at fault, the West is at fault And all that's very confusing. So a lot of that unraveling has to happen, like Alina says. Uh, we've got to also think about where we stand in, in, in society. And that's not, uh, that's not being talked about at the moment. So I think the implications not only go across globally, regionally, but also domestically in each of our own countries. Yeah. And of course, uh, there'll be a lot of unhappiness on the ground, uh, you know, the direct impacts, the inflationary impacts of, you know, oil, oil and gas price increases and how that impacts you know, domestic inflation as well. Um, I'm going to move to kind of a, what I call a, a potentially controversial topic. And you, you can see the question that Sharon has prepared. Um, the, the, the topic about China's vice foreign minister, Le Yucheng, talking about, you know, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy being akin to NATO's eastward expansion. And basically to quote what he said at a recent forum, the Indo-Pacific strategy is as dangerous as the NATO strategy of eastward expansion in Europe.
if allowed to go unchecked, it would bring unimaginable consequences and ultimately push the Asia-Pacific into a fiery pit. It seems like uh, he's being quite poetic here. Um, so what, what are your views? Uh, I, I tend to disagree. Uh, you can't compare the two together. At the very least, Indo-Pacific strategy is not an alliance. It's, you know, it's just a, it's just a vision of regional order. But uh, perhaps, uh, Alina, you might want to jump in and agree or disagree with our Chinese minister friend. Yeah, I think there's a fair bit of exaggeration here, and I would agree that uh, it's not an apt comparison. With all due respect, um, to be honest, I think. Many commentators in ASEAN would say, "What's new about the Indo-Pacific strategy?" You know, and and exactly there, yeah. there there was more hope for greater departure from what was already on the table with the Americans, and so the Indo-Pacific strategy seems a bit tame. Um, so I, I mean, in short, I, I think the quotation is really a, a bit far-fetched. It's so easy, right, to to draw these very simplistic parallels because it appeals. It's something that's easy to digest. You think about oh, the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy and drawing yeah. a parallel to the NATO. So I think that that kind of appeals to a certain segment, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, know. it's a pungent soundbite. I'll say it's kind of pungent. Uh, it captures your attention, but when you drill it down, uh, you know, I I I would tend to disagree uh, it's, it's not the same category uh Hung, would you have uh, some thoughts on the quote yeah i also think it is you know the way um the chinese uh, diplomats like to describe things and they for example referred previously to quad as an ocean foam that will um <laughs> disappear so, again i'm quite poetic isn't it but I think you know, for from the point of view of China, maybe it is, and in a way, you know, feel uh, they might feel targeted by the, the strategy, but um, but not for the rest uh, of of the region, because you know, what is in the Pacific strategy? It's still it's still there are a lot of um, you know things to be uh, clarified in this different concept, policies, strategies, even you know outlook. It's not a strategy. It's certainly not building new forms of alliances. The countries uh, leading the Indo-Pacific so can't afford that. They keep saying that you know everybody has to shoulder their own uh, security, so there's no appetite of building NATO-like structure for sure. Um, the Indo-Pacific strategy is about the free and open and prosperous and secure region. So I, you know, for the rest of the region, um, I don't think that is that threatening. <laughs> Uh, it's actually the opposite. If if we quote the previous example we discussed about Quad and the, uh, and the vaccine partnership, our climate action, are those a part of the Pacific strategy? Yes, they are. So what is threatening in it? Not much. I think it's quite uh, you know contributing to the region. But I think what what the, the Chinese um, um, diplomats or uh, strategic thinkers uh, you know think of the Indo-Pacific strategy they think about you know attempts to sort of contain or yeah. uh, or you know keep it keep china's expansion at bay or at least um, signal to china that any 
ambitions of, of expansion and further coercion will have some response. So that's what they are referring to. But I think for the rest of the region, um, at times it actually comes handy because, you know, a lot of countries in the region uh, experience that coercion coming from China. So to have some others, uh, bigger guys coming up and saying that this is not going to be accepted, it's actually to their benefit, isn't it? Hmm. I I would agree. I think that you know the Indo-Pacific strategy is kind of a strategy looking for a tangible manifestation. I mean, it's not an alliance. Uh, you know, it's it's not even a pseudo kind of uh, alliance. It's it's just a strategy, and it's it's not gotten a lot of buy-in from ASEAN because ASEAN came out with its own version of Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think I agree with you, Hung. It's the Chinese are probably overplaying it. But um, uh, I would say to be kinder to China that Chinese strategy and kind of Indo-Pacific strategy has cancelled themselves out in the sense that, um, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy is not getting a lot of uptake, but China continues doing what it does, you know, Belt and Road Initiative and kind of economic initiatives with the rest of the region. Sharon wants to jump in here. Yeah, just want to just pick up on the point about the U.S. as a security partner, and um, I think what's happened in Ukraine has also brought home to countries in this region the point that the security umbrella the U.S. has provided is actually shrinking, and that everyone's gotta be on your own. <laughs> you gotta look up for yourself and your own security. And I, I when I look at bringing it back to the survey at this question of whether the U.S. is a reliable strategic partner. The rankings uh, that express confidence that the U.S. is indeed a good partner has actually shrunk and it's shrunk quite uh, dramatically. So I think that sensing that, uh, you know, what's coming out from D.C. saying that, you know, uh, there's no appetite for this and, and so on, it's, it's kind of trickling down as well and it's shown up in the survey. So it'd be very interesting to uh, look at the results next year to see if it's shrunk even further. Thanks for that, Sharon. I think pretty well dovetails with what our discussion about Indo-Pacific strategy and, you know, perceptions of the US as a reliable strategic partner. Well, it looks like we have covered a lot of ground today on, on the survey and Russia and Ukraine and China's piety poultry. Um, so I, I want to thank uh, our participants again in this podcast for your time, for Hung, for Alina, for Sharon, for spending the time with us, and especially for Alina, who's, you know, probably going past or your, your bedtime, uh, wherever you are. Here's <laughs> uh, wishing you a, a great weekend, and uh, we hope to see you again and talk to you Thanks again.